been out shopping in the malls. Actually, I sneak around the edges so I don't bump into too many people and get a cold or something like that. But uh, hearing the gospel sung everywhere, it's kind of neat, isn't it? You know, here you are and you're hearing uh, some really great stuff about the gospel and you just kind of wish people knew what they were singing. But then I remember when I was dead and blind and I was singing all those songs in church and I still didn't know what they meant. We Christians try to think of ways to witness to people, people of different religions. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to reach some people. So we think of ways, like how are we going to witness to the Jews? And we try to think of that. How are we going to reach Jews? Do you know in the first century, they had the opposite problem. They were all Jews and God was trying to get them to witness to the Gentiles. <laughs> That's kind of funny, isn't it? Um, how are we going to get these, this church down there to recognize they need to go witness to the Gentiles? All of the followers of Jesus were originally Jewish, and uh, there was no concerted effort to reach the Gentiles. I mean, they were not in the fast lane to get there. So God had to intervene and to help them figure it all out, starting with a guy named Peter, whom we are uh, learning about right here in Acts, ch- Acts chapter 10. So we're going to start with reading our text, Acts 10, verses 1 through 33. If you follow along, I'm sure you'll get a lot more out of the message. Acts 10. Starting verse 1. Now there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what has been called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, 
was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason you have sent for me? Verse 30, and then Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who's also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, and we're going to save that part for next week, which is great, great, great evangelistic sermon by Peter that we'll get to hear on Christmas Sunday. Well, salvation is from the Jews. You should know that. Jesus was a Jew, is a Jew, and salvation comes from the Jewish people. But salvation is not just for the Jews. The church of Jesus has a mission to the whole world. Would you agree? Not just one ethnic group. Here at Hope Bible Church, like many other local churches, we have formed a missions committee. And here they're called Spreading Hope. That's a cool name. But why do we have a missions committee at our local church? It's not so that the missions committee alone will do the work of missions. Would you also agree? But it's to help our whole church learn and understand the global mission until all of us, all of us have the same global perspective of evangelism that our God has. Dr. John Stott is often quoted in regards to this mission we must be global Christians, he writes, with a global vision because our God is a global God. It's a great quote, and it's true. The missionary David Livingston promoted missions when he said, God only had one son, and he was a missionary. Well, Jesus was sent to earth on a mission. It would end up being a global mission of salvation, to die for the sins of mankind, not just the Jews. And then Jesus sent his disciples on a mission, not just to Israel, but as we learned at the beginning of the book of Acts, to Jerusalem and Judea, then where? Samaria and even to what? The remotest parts of the earth. Today, Jesus leads his church on a global mission. And so we must have a global perspective and be concerned for all of the Gentile nations in the world today, not just our own nation. Isn't it a joy that already we are supporting financially and through prayers, missionaries in Togo, Africa, 
Chile and Ecuador and soon Colombia, South America and Spain in Europe and the Philippines, Med Mission in Asia and the great foreign faraway country of Annapolis in the United States of America, <laughs> which were great to be part of the mission there. Maybe you would like to join spreading hope and help them. Their work is so important for our local church. Well, maybe today will inspire you. Today we are continuing learning from these many verses, basically this message, that God works sovereignly to move his gospel to those whom he's already elected and chosen for salvation, moving them out to the Gentiles, because there's many among the Gentiles that he has chosen, get the gospel out to the Gentile nations so that churches like ours would be here today and we would be continuing the Gentile mission now. That's right. Unless God had done what he did here, you and I would never have known Christ and known the gospel. This is a firsthand eyewitness account that we are reading here that has five scenes that kind of unfold for us this story of God's sovereignty in breaking through the barrier from Jew or half-Jew, which was the Samaritans, to reach the Gentiles. Now, you don't have to fret about your evangelism. If you read this passage very carefully, you'll notice that God made this evangelistic encounter foolproof. There's no way that Peter was going to mess this one up. Message after message came to make sure, and all of the details, that these two would meet and that the gospel would break a barrier here. And so you might find in your own life, just make sure you're open, make sure you're willing, make sure the gospel is on your tongue and you know how to explain it, and pray, God, give me an opportunity and he will give you opportunities. It may not all be as, as easy as this one, but God will use your life. He'll put you in places that uh, he wants you to open your mouth and talk. Now, the first two scenes of the five we covered last time. First was the vision to Cornelius in verses 1 through 8. In those verses, just to summarize it, we saw the angel appeared to Cornelius, told him, go and get Peter from Joppa. And Cornelius, of course, sent his very best on this very important mission. They arrived in Joppa, and God was already working on the other end to make sure it would all match, right? And that was the second scene we covered also last time, the vision to Peter, and that was in verses 9 through 16. There it tells us that Peter fell into a trance. What's that? A very intense kind of a vision. And he had a conversation with God. The conversation goes back and forth between Peter and God. And first he sees this vision of this sheet with four corners. The sheet is filled with animals of every kind, clean and unclean. It comes down out of the heavens. And um, there's a divine voice that comes out of the heaven and tells Peter three things. Arise, kill, and eat. And of course, Peter says, no, no way, by no means. I've never eaten anything unclean. He refuses because he believes he needs to keep the law of God. The vision which provided this progressive revelation we talked about last time, where you get more information about God's program, came to him three times to make sure he would get it, to enforce the fact that God has indeed now cleansed those animals, so don't call them unclean anymore. It's quite emphatic that none of that is unclean in this dispensation under the new covenant. Well, Peter was left on the rooftop scratching his head, pondering what the vision meant because it extended beyond animals to human beings. And today we come to the third scene. That's where you could put your head down now. We'll get back into the text. 
the third scene, and that is Peter meets Cornelius' men. Look at verse 17. That's where we kind of pick up, and I'll read it again, down through verse 23. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I sent them myself. Verse 21, Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for, and what is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he, that is Peter, invited them in and gave them lodging. All right, so we're left with Peter, and he's greatly perplexed as to the meaning of the vision. That term perplexed there, dia pareo, indicates that he was having a struggle to understand the vision. His mind was divided about what the vision might mean. In fact, the verb is in the imperfect tense, and what that means is that that puzzlement was ongoing. It was lingering. Peter was kind of working through his thoughts when, lo and behold, and this is not a coincidence, right? The men from Cornelius arrive exactly at that time. Please don't miss that. Now, notice right there in the middle of verse 17, it says, Behold, the men from Cornelius arrive at the gate. You know what the word behold means. It means sit up and take notice. Something noteworthy is happening. And, and because of that, we see God's hand in all of this. We see God working on one side. We see him working on the other side to keep them in sync. And that way, we know God is working. This is a great study if we were to take a longer period of time with this on how God's providence works, how God controls even the smallest events to bring about great events, right? Men were making their own choices about, you know, related to their travel and what they would do, but God was making sure whatever they chose, his plan worked out perfectly. It's fascinating. By the way, you might think of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, right? He's going to make sure it happened. God knew how fast Cornelius would act. He knew who Cornelius would choose to go on the trip, and he knew all about those men and how capable they were and how fast they would find the house and all of it. It's amazing. Now, you could translate that to your own life, to your own world, and you could say, yep, God knows all about traffic patterns and traffic jams. He knows whether the light is going to be green or red, how fast you drive, whether you'll be caught by police today and given a ticket. He knows your work habits. He knows your choices. He knows everything. And God still works to place you exactly where he wants you to be to speak to exactly whom he wants you to speak to. There are no coincidences in a universe controlled by God's providence. Not even your being here today is a coincidence. There is no luck. There is only God's design. So don't knock on wood. Pray to God. Next They called out, and they asked if Peter was the one that was staying there. That's in verse 18. And, of course, the answer was yes. They had come to the right place, and they did not even have a GPS, so they worked it all out. They followed the directions perfectly. These were very good attendants to Cornelius. He chose good men. And then you go into verses 19 and 20, and Peter's reflecting on the vision. He had not really concluded anything at this point in time. So much so, he's kind of still perplexed that he has to get nudged a little here, doesn't he? So the Spirit says to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, accompany them 
Don't go with any misgivings. Don't worry about them. I sent them to you. Of course, God is still supervising everything, making sure all of this is leading. I've said it again and again, to make sure the gospel breaks through into the Gentile world. Now, the Holy Spirit, of course, is God himself. You should know that. He's the third member, the triune Godhead. We believe in one God and three persons. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God and three persons. It's a mystery of the Trinity. He is indeed, the Holy Spirit is a person, not just some impersonal force. Please notice the Holy Spirit takes credit for sending the men to Peter. Did you catch that? Wait a minute. I thought it was the angel who sent them to Peter. Correct. But who sent the angel to Cornelius? And the answer is the Holy Spirit, God. Wait a minute. If God sends angels, the Holy Spirit sends angels, so that means the Holy Spirit is himself God, right? Maybe you thought of when angels were dispatched that it was God, and maybe in your mind you thought, it's just the Father who sends angels to do things. Here's a passage that lets us know that the Holy Spirit sends angels to carry out the will of God. Now, you just learned a little bit about angelology. The Holy Spirit also dispatches angels on missions. Of course, if you read your Bible carefully, you'll see that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Again, would you agree? He's the head of the church. But did you know the Holy Spirit is the administrator of the church? He is the one who organizes and arranges and empowers everything inside of the church. It's the Holy Spirit who enacts the will of the head of the church. Jesus says, here are the ministries that I want to see in my church. The Holy Spirit then apportions the right spiritual gifts to the right people in the right proportions to make sure those ministries are carried out. The Holy Spirit is the administrator of the church. Jesus says, this is the action that I want to see the church do. The Holy Spirit empowers and directs the believers so they will get it done. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty sitting in the heavenly places. The Holy Spirit is down here communicating the very presence of Jesus indwelling His church. It is by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ Himself manifests Himself and His presence to the church. That is why we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. He is the very Spirit of Christ among us. The same title is given to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 16 and verse 7. That is why Jesus described the Holy Spirit when he was going to be coming into the world in John 16, 14, that he is, the Spirit will glorify me, he said, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He's going to take what I know and he's going to reveal it to you. The Holy Spirit is not down here doing something different than what Jesus wants. Whenever you see people talking about the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and glorifying the Holy Spirit, they're probably not that close to the Holy Spirit. But when you see people down here saying, this is what Jesus wants done, let's get all excited about Jesus Christ, there you know the Holy Spirit is working powerfully, because that's His job as the administrator of the church. And so the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in all aspects of the life of Christ's church. And here it is that the Spirit speaks directly to Peter, to get Peter to do the will of Jesus Christ. Several times you may note, as you read through the book of Acts, we will hear that little phrase that the Spirit said, or the Spirit spoke and told somebody to do something. 
It's interesting, I've looked all up and down the book of Acts, and it never tells us exactly how the Spirit spoke. (laughs) It'd be nice if it did. So there's a lot of debate about this. Either by a non-audible message, something that popped into their heads, some very strong spiritual intuition, a very strong impression that somebody had, or by audible words. And people debate what was the form of the Holy Spirit's speech here to Peter and to other people. I personally favor the audible words because the words that are recorded are so exact and so specific, it'd be hard to think of that as coming as an impression. And because the supernatural communication from God is already in the context twice, we have the angel's speech, which was audible and was supernatural, and we have the vision that at least to Peter was audible. And so we see the supernatural communication already in the context. It would make sense Because Peter is a prophet, and I don't know if you know that, but every apostle was also a prophet, but not every prophet was an apostle. But Peter was a prophet, so he was used to that direct, audible communication from God, and so that is what makes the most sense contextually to me here. The central thing the Holy Spirit told Peter was this, you're going to have to go with these guys. You may have some misgivings about it, but don't. You're going to need to go because I sent them, and you're going to have to trust me. Now, the Holy Spirit could have told Peter the whole plan right here, right? And he didn't. Why didn't he? Well, I'd be guessing, but I think it's so that he wants Peter to continue to what? Walk by faith and trust him. So I know I can tell you sitting here right now that I wish the Lord God in the heavens would speak to me and tell me what he's doing in my life. That would be a lot easier, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe his wisdom is what I should follow. Maybe his wisdom is what you should follow. He's like, I wish God would just tell me. I'm a young person. I want to know what he's mapped out. I'm so ready to do what he wants me to do. If he told you everything that he wanted you to do, I think you might balk right now. And I was told, you know, Tom, you're going to go back to Maryland. You're going to plant the church. Oh, yeah, about 20 years in, you're going to get pancreatic cancer. I might have said, Lord, I want another assignment. I don't want to ever meet these people in my whole life. Send me somewhere else, Lord. But he knows what you can handle, and he builds your faith as you go along. And then he says, he turns to you, and he says, this is the next thing I want you to do. And guess what? We have to trust him along the way, right? We think if we just lived back in Bible times, then God would talk to us. And all. They didn't get told that much. I mean, look at what Abraham didn't get told. You ever think about that? I mean, you know more than Abraham knows reading your Bible. It's not always so great in Bible land. You know, you got it pretty good here. Well, this time it's very good. Peter does not tell the Lord no this time. It's good. Look at Peter's words in verse 21. Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. He just has one nagging question still, right? Why? Why do you want me? That's what I would be asking. You know, he's had the divine revelation, and he's allowed to use a little bit of logic and use his reasoning power. This is what God told me to do. This is kind of us doing our Bible study, right? We're trying to understand the application. What do I do with this? That's exactly what you're supposed to do. You receive revelation, and then you begin pondering it. You begin thinking on it. That's what you should be doing. That's what Peter was doing, and he's still trying to figure it out, and he hasn't found the why yet. That's right. I got to go with these guys. I got to put aside any problems. I have a conscience about entering into a Gentile home. No misgivings, the Holy Spirit said, but Why? He doesn't have it here yet, right? Verse 22 fills in more of the detail. The men told Peter, Cornelius, a righteous man, and all of that was directed by an angel for you to come to his house, Uh uh-oh, Gentile house, in Caesarea, 
and to hear a message from you. I think right about now is when things started to begin to click in Peter's mind. Yes, I do. Why? Because Peter knows that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This isn't his first time around the block. When someone calls for him to give a message, he knows it's not about how to cook Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever they had back then. <laughs> he knows he's an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, and there's not too many of those in the world. What other message would Peter be called to deliver than the precious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? So I think he's putting two and two together. Otherwise, why would he be inviting these Gentile men into... By the way, why does he get to invite people into a home that's not even his home? I think that's kind of interesting. But he invites them in, right? What a great host. Imagine having somebody there in your home and they say, yeah, come on in. And he's got all these other friends. Wait, this I thought this was my house. But Peter invites them in. They must have been good buddies. Verse 23, they're invited in. Now, most of that day had already passed. They traveled 30 miles, so it would be better to get a good start in the morning, and I think that's why they're going to spend the evening here. There is some difference of opinion about what this symbolized when Peter invited Gentiles into a Jewish home. One view is that it was generally allowable by the rabbis because then the Jewish person was more in charge and they could avoid doing the kinds of things and eating the kinds of things that would result in contamination and being unclean. Dr. MacArthur, in his commentary, represents a different view. He writes this, Here was a further crack in the barrier between Jew and Gentile. No self-respecting Jew would have given lodging to Gentiles, especially to a soldier of the hated Roman occupation army. But Peter gave his unexpected guests the red carpet treatment, showing the work of God in Peter's heart had broken down the typical Jewish prejudice. He had a hard time letting the dietary law go, but had no animosity in his heart toward Gentiles, so the hospitality was easy, end quote. Well, we said last week that there was this giant wall that divided Jew and Gentile, remember that? And it started to be cracked. I mean, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is what destroyed that wall. But in terms of the application of that in uh, the life of the church, we see that, that barrier there that was erected by the law of God that separated Jew and Gentile. That is beginning to crumble and crack right here. If you listen carefully, you can hear large chunks of the wall coming down. Well, I hope that the same toppling of prejudice that is to some degree there in probably most devout Jewish hearts, Peter's heart as well, I hope that that tumbling of prejudice is happening in our own hearts as well. I know that Acts chapter 10 is not written to primarily help us deal with the topic of prejudice. If people who preach this passage, they get into that and they go on and on about that, but it's not really written to teach that. But it does illustrate how God was dealing with one man, how God was dealing with Peter's heart to the mission of reaching people he probably was not all that excited about reaching. I mean, Gentiles were not exactly a favorite topic for Jews, if you think about it. Therefore, reaching Gentiles wouldn't have been the favorite activity for Jewish people, believers or not. Peter was likely much more excited about reaching his kinsmen according to the flesh. But God was changing this man. I think all of us can take a moment to check our own prejudice and think about this. Do we get more excited about evangelism and outreach 
when we see that it's directed to people that are more like us, more like you. When I listed where our missionaries were serving earlier in this sermon, were you kind of disappointed that the country that you were from doesn't have a missionary to it yet, or at least that's in your background? If you are Asian, for example, do you get more excited when you see up front people being baptized who are Asian or people joining the church who are Asian? Or if you are white, do you get more excited when you hear about evangelism programs going out into areas that will reach white people? How subtle is our prejudice, I wonder? Think about the last five groups that you've had over to your home. How many of them contained people that were not like you from this church? See, we could say, I'm not prejudiced, and maybe in your heart there's a lot of love there, and I don't, I don't doubt that. I know in my heart there's a lot of love. But prejudice and bias can work in subtle ways, can it not? Peter was a man of prayer. Peter was a man that was chasing a relationship with Christ, but he was not yet perfected. You can love the Lord Jesus Christ, but not be aware of your prejudice, not be aware of how that affects you. I noticed that in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10 and Matthew chapter 15 and verse 2, Jesus did not hesitate to praise, I think more than just about anyone else, he praised two Gentiles for their tremendous faith that they had. And he said, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. There was no bias in the heart of the Lord Jesus. We are here as a local body in Christ to reach every beating heart for Christ. Amen. Beneath the skin, everybody has red blood as far as I know. And we all have souls that are equal before God. I don't mean equally good. I mean equally lost. I mean equally sinful. I mean equally under the judgment of Almighty God. If you've come from a church where they don't talk about the judgment of God, they're skipping about half of the Bible, if you haven't noticed, because it's all over there. It's not loving to tell people that God has accepted them when God has already rejected them. What is loving about that? We are all under the judgment of God until we turn to the babe lying in Bethlehem, right? Who's grown up, become our Savior, and we cry out to him and say what? Save me. Save me, the sinner. Uh, I'm a wretch, and I know I'm a sinner, and I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. Please, please forgive me of my sins. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. I believe in his resurrection from the dead. Please save my soul. When you say that sincerely in your heart, God will save you. Until that, until you recognize your sin, until you recognize Christ is the only way, until you put faith in him, you stand alone facing the holy judgment of God, and you don't have a chance. Certainly no other religion will save you. Well, the fourth scene is Cornelius receiving Peter, and this is an exciting scene. And if your eyes will go down to the last part of verse 23, we'll pick up reading there. Verse 23, and on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found 
Many people assembled, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason you have sent for me? He still wants them to verbalize it specifically. Wow, so what do we have here? Jew and Gentile now together under one roof. Peter is getting it. And the church is about to learn about the equality of Gentiles in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 23, it says, Peter left the very next day. Men from Joppa accompanied Peter. And we learn in Acts chapter 11 and verse 12, that is the next chapter, that there were six of these men that came with Peter from Joppa, six Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus, brethren, God did not command Peter to bring these extra men along, but they, they end up serving as some of the witnesses to this historic event. Their testimony adds crucial evidence to convince all of the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem that God indeed had given the Gentiles, apart from obeying the law of Moses, full access to the privileges of the Jewish kingdom. Dr. John MacArthur Comments, two worlds were about to collide as seven devout Orthodox Jews were about to meet a houseful of eager Gentiles. A milestone in the history of the church had been reached, end quote. Notice verse 24 on the following day and see how precise the chronology is here that Luke recounts. What does that tell you when you see all of those precise details? That tells you that Luke was getting all of this from eyewitnesses, Right? These are people, this is a first century account, so trying to listen to scholars that are centuries removed from this, telling us what's more accurate seems ridiculous. This is very early, it's precise. Luke has been confirmed many times, as we've shown you from archaeological discoveries. It's accurate. Cornelius had gathered his own friends. Cornelius had gathered his extended family to the house as well. So on both ends, the Jewish end and the Gentile end, people were being added to be witnesses to this event. The presence of other Gentiles and other Jews made this event even more heightened. And again, this illustrates to us that God can guide people by giving them direct revelation as when the angel talked, as when the Spirit spoke, or He can guide people who take direct revelation, begin thinking about it, using their own reasoning, and, and concluded, we need more people to this event, and they brought them. A whole group of Gentiles being brought into the church of Jesus would make it much harder for the Jews back in Jerusalem, as we will see when we get to chapter 11, to reject what happened here, to reject the movement of the Spirit of God among the Gentiles. They just they end up throwing their hands up and saying, well, I guess this is what God is doing. And they concluded rightly. Obviously, the appearance of an angel had for Cornelius been the greatest event maybe in his life. He says, I'm about to hear the most important message I've ever heard in my life. And so the fact that he would gather extended family and people that he knows to come, you got to hear this, you got to hear this, makes perfect sense. For Cornelius, this was a monumental event. Of course, he wanted more people there. Well, finally, the meeting happens. Verse 25, Peter enters the Gentile house. And Cornelius does what? He's got a few things to learn, doesn't he? He falls down to worship Peter. See, he wasn't told everything either, right? Peter wants nothing to do with this. 
Peter instantly raises Cornelius up. I am only a man. You know, people that preach the Word of God sometimes are hated unfairly, but sometimes they are deified, and that too is wrong. We are just human heralds, just a mouth speaking for a divine king, right? The attention that Peter got, he used to draw attention not to himself. I mean, a proud man would have strutted right then. Yeah, you got the great Peter in-house. He's here. Oh, yeah. Did you charge any money? He didn't. He wanted nothing to do with this. That's a great insight into his heart. I think something like what the Lord Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount was in his head. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who's in heaven. Nevertheless, we have to say that Cornelius was so ready to hear the Word of God. If ever there was a man prepared to hear a sermon, it was Cornelius. I'm tempted to ask you what you do to get ready to hear a sermon, but I'm not going to ask you. (laughs) I wish we just all understood what a privilege it is to hear the Word of God preached. Sometimes you come into church, and I know how it is. I did it when I was a kid, when I was a teenager as well, and you're like, ho-hum, another Sunday. You have no idea how quickly what you have can be taken away from you. So Peter next gives his greeting and his explanation in verse 28. He essentially remarks, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with a Gentile, to enter into a Gentile home. And then he says, yet God has shown me, and here it comes, start clanging the bell. This is from the horse's mouth himself. I should not call any and it doesn't say animal, any what? Man, unholy or unclean. Bingo, Peter. Bullseye. You got it. Peter understood the vision. It wasn't just about God cleansing animals, any animal, the unclean animals of the Old Testament for our era. It was about God cleansing the Gentiles as well. Verse 29, he says, that is why I came without objection when called for. Now, why did you send for me? (laughs) It's on his mind. He's asking it again and again. I think he knows, but I think uh, he wants them to be exact in their verbalizing it. So that moves us into the fifth and the last scene. Cornelius asks to hear Peter. Cornelius actually has to ask Peter, please preach. That's in verses 30 through 33. Now, in these verses, Cornelius basically recounts the story of the visit by the angel. I'm not going to reread the verses here because it essentially is a recapitulation of the facts that we as the readers already know. So why did Luke uh, have it repeated in the narrative? Uh, I think the answer is for emphasis' sake. That repetition, which is going to happen in chapter 11 again, okay, just underscores how important this meeting and this day was in church history. I don't know that I've convinced you of that yet. Apart, listen, apart from the day of Pentecost, no day has had as far-reaching consequences for the church of Jesus Christ, that is, once the church was started, than this day right here. For it opened up the world of Gentiles, 99% of the world's population today, to the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask again, aren't 
We so thankful for that. There is one extra detail that's given as he retells the story, and that is that, that this man, this angel, shone with heaven's glory there. He looked like a man, but he was shining. Does that match descriptions of angelic appearances in other places? Yes, it does. You can look up on your own time Luke 24, 4, or Acts chapter 1, verse 10, or Matthew 28 and verse 3. Angels appearing always appear as young men. I know there are a lot of beautiful angel ladies being sold in the stores these days. This is that time of the year where I remind everybody, I haven't found a woman angel in the Bible yet. If you do, show it to me. Whenever they appear and they're described, they're not old men, they're not babies, they're not women, they're strong, soldier-like, shining, terrifying, often soldier-like men, sometimes with swords drawn, brilliant or white, brilliant white shining clothing that they have on. There's another extra little detail that Cornelius puts in there in verse 33, and that is he calls Peter kind. It was kind for you to come. Why did he say that? Because this was hard for Peter. He had to travel the 30 miles. He had to do a little bit of trusting, and he had to enter into a home which he's not accustomed to entering into. I know you and I say, what's the big deal? We enter into this guy's home and this guy's home. This was a big deal for a Jew who wanted to remain pure, who had the law of God taught to him that you don't, you don't become impure. So this took some sacrifice on Peter's part. Clearly, Cornelius is appreciative. And he ends with the words, now then, we are all here, present, before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He is so eager. Everything is set up. They're all there to listen. If ever a preacher was to preach, it was this sermon. (laughs) Don't blow it. (laughs) You know, our preaching preaching professor in seminary, you know, when he's used to hearing a lot of the rookie preachers, And he said, look, if you can't do anything else, just at least state what's there in the Bible, okay? (laughs) Just deliver the goods, you know. If you can't really say it all that eloquently, just make sure they hear what's in the Bible. I remember thinking to myself, I think I can do that. I think I can do that. (laughs) Just make it clear. Cornelius mentions that Peter also was under command. You've been commanded to preach. I don't know if you noted that or not. That's correct. Peter was chosen to bear witness to Jesus Christ, so giving his testimony was not an option. He was under divine command also. Indeed, God commands preachers to preach. Uh, Sometimes you see a great turmoil in the life of a man called to preach because he has to do it. He just is under internal constraint. You might not understand that. I do. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. And it says, be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? When they want to listen, when they don't want to listen. This, I would think, would be called in season for Peter. God God wants his word preached. God, God wants his word proclaimed. He doesn't want our mouths quiet. If you want to know what is the will of God, it's for you to preach. You don't need a pulpit to preach. You sit there, open your mouth, talk to somebody, tell them about it. That's preaching. 
That's how God is glorified, because the preaching of his gospel glorifies his character, his love, his holiness, his justice, his faithfulness. Yes? I always cringe when I hear somebody in church or on Christian radio say, we're not preaching. We're not preaching at you. As if it's a bad thing to preach. It's so popular to put down preaching. People don't like the sting that preaching brings. But preaching is loving. Preaching is kind. Preaching is informative. It's educational. Preaching and heralding. For you, you might say you call it witnessing. Giving your testimony, even in written form. Is the way, is the way, is the way that God has chosen for his gospel to spread in this world. Did you know that? In every age, in every culture, in every nationality, God chose preaching. I don't mean preaching behind a pulpit only. I mean talking, telling, taking an authoritative message from the one who said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, right? He said, I have the authority. Go talk and tell them everything I commanded you. You're under divine command as well. Listen, it's not enough to live well next to your neighbor. It's not enough to live nicely next to your coworker. You got to speak the gospel. People only get saved by hearing the word of Christ. And as I said, you don't need a pulpit to preach. Romans 10, 13, and following, you know it. For whoever, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a what? A preacher. Michael Riccardi from the Master's Seminary has a helpful blog entitled, How Important is Methodology to Evangelism? He says it's very typical for evangelists and missionaries to say something like this. Look, we hold firmly to the message. We never change the message, the gospel. But we hold with an open hand how evangelism is accomplished, the method. So he wrote this to counter that idea. He wrote, our methodology must be consistent with the character of the message. Rather than understanding doctrine as being in one closed hand, while our methodology is in another open hand, the methods are more like an instrument in the hand of doctrine. Our methodology flows directly out of and is intensely shaped by our theology, by what we believe. And the methodology we have been commissioned with is preaching, proclaiming, heralding, authoritatively declaring the truth. When someone asks, yes, but how do we preach the gospel? They are confusing the issue. Preaching itself is the methodology. It is the how. And that's true. God did not want theatricals going on to share his gospel. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way, but it can never replace preaching. We hear the songs, and we say, that's so beautiful. Listen to the gospel in the song. That's great, but that will never replace preaching. 
that will never replace you talking to someone one-on-one or you talking to a group or sharing on a street corner or having it in a house with a Bible study. That's what we mean by heralding. Nothing will ever replace that. That goes from one house to another and from one coworker to another, and that's you as well. God chose that method because that method is authoritative. And God is not sharing a nice idea with the world. God is calling every man, woman, and child to repent of their sins before he destroys the world. He's not giving them an option in terms of another way of salvation. When we preach Christ, that's the only hope they have. And next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, we get to glory in the gospel that's going to be preached. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Not just thinking about Jesus as a baby, but proclaiming what the babe in Bethlehem accomplished? So invite somebody to church next week. Proclaim the gospel to them yourself if they won't come, or even if they do. See how God uses your mouth, and see how God uses the simple proclamation of the truth to change lives. Amen? Amen. Father, we're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful that on this Lord's Day, we can receive in the fellowship of our church people who have professed to receive that gospel. Thank you for this word. We pray it will change lives and hearts, that you deal with our prejudice, that you deal with our lack of boldness to give the gospel, that you deal with our timidity and change us too, Lord. This church has so much potential by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, it just makes me want to pop sometimes when I think about it. Uh, Move the people that are less committed to see that it's such a joy to have more commitment and to yield their lives to you. Empower them, help them to get training. And Father, thank you for Pastor Al and all the work he puts into our um, new members' courses and uh, interviews and just bless this time of our service as well. Amen.